0: Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, Pastor Steve Benninger gives a sermon entitled, Your One and Only Life. You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. If you've got a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, go to Romans chapter 11, if you will. I'm going to talk fast this morning, so stay with me. I'm excited to bring the Word to you today. This is a week every year when I get a bit more reflective than usual about my life. And I remind myself that I really shouldn't be here. According to the laws of physics, I should have died on June 20th, 1979, Some of you have been around for a while, you know my story, but if you're newer, a drunk driver lost control of his vehicle on a Southern California highway. He flew across the center median, hit me head on, me and my little beetle bug. And physics tells us that two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. 80 miles an hour versus 60 miles an hour typically results in zero survivors. As far as I know, no one else survived, but I walked away And uh, I'm grateful to God for that. So I mark that as the day that I should have died. And every year, the third week of June, I remind myself that I'm still here when I shouldn't be, and that every day of my life is a gift from God. And I suspect I'm not the only one. Is there anybody else in the room who can say the same thing? There was a day when you should have died, but you didn't, and you're still here. Can I see your hands? Yeah, I've been surprised over the weekend as to how many people have have had that experience. You know, when you go through something like that, it does something to you. You just instinctively start asking yourself questions like, why am I still here? Why was I given more days to live on this earth? I must have been spared for a reason, for a purpose, but what is it? Is there something I'm supposed to do, something I'm supposed to accomplish? I've determined that in God's plan... One reason that Steve Benninger is still around is so that I can share that experience with others like you and challenge you to think seriously about your life and your remaining days on this earth. One day in eternity, I imagine, you'll be able to access the video archives of your life, and then you'll see that there were indeed some instances where you too should have died, but God or his angels intervened and saved you and protected you, and so like me, by the grace of God, you're still here. And I want you to know you're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason. Today I want to talk about making the most of your one and only life. I want to look into your eyes as a fellow living human being and challenge you to please not waste your one and only life, but go all out to maximize it for the things that really matter, for the greatest possible good for as long as the Lord has you here. And so how? How? How do we go about doing that? Maybe you're asking that question, and if so, thank you. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the book of Romans is a monumental book in the Bible. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on it, and in his, in his uh, preface he said this, This letter to the Romans is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel It is well worth a Christian's while to not only memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. Romans is the most exhaustive treatise in the entire Bible on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'd like to take the next few moments and try and summarize it for you, which is a tall order. If you haven't pulled your notes out yet, you might want to do that so you can track with me. If you read the first three chapters of the book of Romans, over that you could place the header condemnation, our need for the gospel, i.e. the bad news. In those chapters, Paul, the apostle, the writer, like a skilled attorney, begins to build a case against humanity. The charge, treason, high treason against our creator, rebellion against him. Although God created people for his own glory and for our pleasure, and although he revealed himself to us through his glorious and beautiful creation, our ancestors thought it better to suppress the truth about God and actually get to the place where they traded God in for other gods who were more to their liking. Chapter 1, verse 21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How did God respond? Well, it says that God backed away. God abandoned humanity, it says, to their own devices with the ensuing moral decay and deterioration of society. We've seen some of that, yes, and the resulting judgment of eternal separation from God. And no one is exempt from this condemnation, not Jew or Gentile, all fall under His judgment. For there is no one righteous, no not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And so all of mankind, according to Romans 1 through 3, stands guilty before God's judgment bar and deserving of God's eternal wrath. And in verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul closed out the damning case against mankind, with the pronouncement that the entire world is accountable to God for breaking His holy law. And mankind is left really speechless, standing there at the judgment bar of God with no excuse, no valid defense. So Romans 1 through 3, the word is condemnation. That's the bad news. All of us are lawbreakers. There is zero hope for us if the story ended there. But thank God for Romans 3.21 because the tone begins to change in Paul's writing. And he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So now over Romans 3.21 through chapter 5, you could pen this title, justification. So chapters 1 through 3, condemnation, chapters 3.21 through 5, Justification, God's great provision of the gospel. We should probably all thank God every day for Romans 3.21 through chapter 5. Therein is revealed this great truth that the righteous judge of all the earth, for some reason, decided to lay down his gavel, take off his judge's robe, and step down from the bench to assume the place of the guilty to take our punishment, to serve our sentence so that we could go free. Now this is called, theologians call it penal substitutionary atonement, and it is outrageous. An innocent man paying for the sins of the guilty, who does that and why? Well, Romans 3 through 5 reveals that Jesus did this. And listen, he did it for both God and for us. Did you know that Jesus Christ died for God? Not for God's sins, but he died for God in this sense. He vindicated his Father's honor as a righteous judge because God had been forgiving sins for centuries without requiring anything from the sinner except animal blood given in sacrifice. And of course, animal blood is not sufficient, is not adequate to atone for sin. But that act did reveal God's willingness to accept a substitute. And so in that sense, Jesus' death was first and foremost meant to vindicate His Father's honor, His Father's righteousness. It satisfied His justice. But thankfully, Jesus also died for us, right? He died for us. He served as our second representative, seeking to undo the damage done by our first representative, whose name was... Adam. That's right. And so Jesus came, didn't he? And he lived and he died and he paid for Adam's sin and he paid for the sins of all those who were in Adam, which is all of us. He atoned for all of our sins so that we could be forgiven. This is amazing grace. This is marvelous mercy. And so in Romans 3 through 5, Paul tells us that Jesus came and died in our place as our substitute. Our substitute. Now having been raised from the dead as the living Lord, he offers us not only pardon and forgiveness for all of our sins, but also his record of righteousness as a gift. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. Think about it. Jesus took our sin, our condemnation, our judgment, he served our sentence and gave us, extended to us, offered us, his straight-A report card of perfect righteousness, the great exchange. I think we got the better of that exchange. Romans 3.24 says, This gift is freely given to all who will receive it by faith, who will stop trusting in their own efforts to earn God's favor and acceptance, but fully trust in Jesus' atonement on their behalf. Romans 4.5 says it so clearly, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, You see, you have to see yourself as ungodly if you ever want to be saved. To that person, their faith is counted as righteousness. This is truly glorious. It really is. And so chapters 1 through 3, condemnation. Chapters 3 through 5, justification. Then above chapters 6 and 7, you could write the word sanctification. And Paul moves into talking about the great effects of the gospel for those who believe it. And it's in these chapters we learn that God wants to make his people holy in their daily life, in their lifestyle, and to do it through that same gospel that saved us. Paul reveals that we're no longer slaves of sin, no longer slaves of sin. No longer slaves of sin. We sing about that, don't we? We've been released from the obligation to serve our former tyrannical master, sin so that we can serve in a new way our new master, Jesus, who is not a tyrant. Tells us we've been freed from the dominion and fear of death, liberated from the obligation to obey all of God's ceremonial laws in order to be accepted by Him. It's in Romans 6 that that, that mysterious union that believers have with Jesus, that mystical union whereby we died with Him and we were raised with Him. It's explained and expounded upon in those chapters, shown to be the basis of our newfound capacity to live a life that pleases God. Yes, chapter 7 tells us we're going to struggle with sin during our early lives. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing, Paul wrote. There's a struggle because the sinful flesh still clings to us, right? In this life, but thanks be to God that through his spirit who indwells in us, he gives us the power to say no to sin. You do not have to sin if you're a believer here today. You do not have to sin. You have no moral obligation to obey that master any longer. If we yield ourselves to God, and one day we will be freed from sinful flesh forever! And that leads into chapter 8, that great chapter. You could title that chapter glorification, glorification. So condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification, the great destiny of all gospel believers. And there it's revealed that while, yes, there is struggle and suffering in this life as we walk through a sin-cursed world, we can know that God is working all things together for our good, the good of those who love him. Beyond that, we can be confident there's coming a day when all sin and suffering and sorrow will be in the rearview mirror. Aren't you glad of that? No more cancer. No more heart disease. No more diabetes. No more joint pain. No more migraine headaches. No more relationship conflict. No more terrorism. Thank God. No more... National rivalries, no more hopelessness, no more heroin taking the lives of our young people. No more abandonment, no more abuse, no more fighting against sin. Not internally within, not externally in the world. We who know Christ will be done with all that, thank God. On that day, all non-believers will be judged, justly so. And all true believers will be completely saved and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ ever. For if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's summed up in Romans 8.30, which says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The great golden chain, the unbreakable golden chain of Romans 8. It's guaranteed, as good as done. It's so certain that Paul puts it in the past tense, like it's happened already. And Romans 8 is followed by Romans 9, 10. And 11, oh my, oh my, that mystifying, mind-expanding, controversial, humbling explanation of God's sovereignty. And over those three chapters, you could put the title, Election, God's Sovereignty in Fulfilling His Gospel Purposes. And the bottom line of those chapters, God is God and you're not, and I'm not. He's the potter and we're the Clay. He's the creator, and we are the creatures, and I'm telling you, creator rights trump creature rights every day. If for his own purposes he desired to choose Jacob over Esau, or Israel over other nations as his special people, that's his prerogative. He's God. Romans 9.18 says, He will have mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And to, to the person who would step forth and say, Well, that's not fair... Paul says this, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? No further questions. God is God, and we are not. He alone is sovereign over all he's made, and he can do as he wishes, and our part is simply to trust his heart of mercy. and the ultimate wisdom of his ways. And so is it any wonder then after unfolding God's sweeping panorama of redemptive history that Paul just breaks forth into this doxology of praise at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. You can't figure him out. You can't put God in a box. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, who's going to give God advice? Now, God, I think you should have done things a little bit differently there. And uh, I don't appreciate that you put me in the family that you did with the parents that I have. Oh, really? (laughs) So you're going to tell God how to do his job. Almighty God. Verse 35, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, who has put God in their debt? To whom does God owe anything? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then right after that in chapter 12, Paul begins to outline the only response to all of that that makes any sense. And so, with all of that as a backdrop, I want to help all of us know how to maximize our remaining days here on this planet. I want to help you this morning live in such a way so as to not waste your one and only life. I've got to be pretty concise here. So let me give it to you. Number one, Pastor Steve, how do I not waste my life? How do I make the most of my one and only life? Number one, aim your life at the right target. Aim your life at the right target, which is the glory of God, to glorify God. Just, let's just trust the apostle here when he writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. In the end, if you may end up making your name famous, but don't make Jesus' name famous, you will have wasted your life. Like all creation, you and I were made for God. To fear Him, to revere Him, to honor Him, to trust Him, to love Him, to treasure Him, to magnify Him, to praise His greatness. You were made for that and to enjoy it. Let me put it like this You're here to make Jesus famous, you're here to spread the fame and the renown of Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. That's why you're taking up space. That's why he gives you breath in your lung every morning to make his name famous, not your name. You know, Paul himself aimed his life at that target to glorify God, and as a consequence, he faced some persecution, didn't he? On trial for his faith, he wrote this in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the word translated honored there, the original word in the Greek is megaluno. Megaluno, probably best translated magnified. I want God to be magnified in my life whether I live or die. That's where Paul was at. Not magnified like a microscope, which makes tiny little things look a little bit bigger than they are, but magnified like a telescope, which makes great, big, magnificent things look more like they really are. To magnify God like that. You say, Steve, I want to make my one and only life count for the greatest good. I say, start by aiming your life at the right target. Glorify God, to magnify Him. And really, it's a choice. It's a choice we have to align with everything else in creation, also designed to display the greatness of God. I was outside last night, one of those awesome Midwest summer nights, looking up at the night sky, seeing the moon and the stars do what they were created to do. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Creator. But we're given a choice. We're given a choice. Aim your life at the right target. Second, and this is the best way to accomplish the first, send your life in the right message. Send your life in the right message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 12.1, Paul makes a big appeal. But first, notice the basis for it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God what's he referring to well it's obvious he's referring to everything he'd written in Romans up to that point right Romans 1 through 11 is an exposition of the mercies of God God's redemptive plan accomplished through his son to reconcile himself to guilty sinners it's the reason the basis the ground of Paul's appeal he's going to make is the gospel that message underscores everything C.J. Mahaney famously wrote, the gospel is not just one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are offered in, take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you will study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. I saw a tweet by Tim Keller this week. I think he was right. He said, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. Endlessly rich. We've been discovering that, haven't we? And this too, I think, is a choice that we're faced with. What, what message are we going to center our lives in? What, what voice are we going to listen to? What tapes are we going to replay over and over and over again in our minds? Are we going to replay those tapes from our parents growing up or from the middle school kids on the playground? Or are we going to believe what God says about us in his word? You are accepted in the beloved one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a choice. What message are you going to center your life in? If you want your one and only life to count, if you want to maximize it, center your life in this message. And third, surrender your life to the right purpose, and that is worship. Worship. Look again at the appeal. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Later on in chapter 12, Paul is going to call believers to work for him. But before he ever calls God's people to get to work, he first calls them to worship. You know, the order is significant because it's worship that fuels our work for God. One fuels the other. Work without worship is just legalism. But what is worship, someone might ask, and it's a good question. Notice first from this verse that that worship is a response. Worship is your response to comprehending and grasping and seeing God's mercy to you. Worship is your response to that, And and The response is pictured here that uses language from the Old Testament sacrificial rituals, right? Here's what worship is. Seeing all that God has done for you in Christ and then climbing up on an altar, laying yourself out and saying, God, I'm yours. I'm offering myself to you. I'm presenting myself to you as a living sacrifice. Now, there are some humans who've offered themselves to God as dead sacrifices, and we call them martyrs. But for us, here, now, worship is about offering ourselves as living sacrifices and saying, oh my, I'm yours, God. You made me, and then you bought me with your blood, so I'm doubly yours. I'm offering all that I understand of me to all that I understand of you. Take my past, my present, my future. Take my sins and addictions and flaws and faults and shortcomings. Take my talents and my gifts and my personality. I'm yours. I'm offering myself completely to you. Take my so-called rights that I think I have. I give you my job, my leisure, my money, my investments, my friends, my sexuality, my loneliness as I cry myself to sleep at night because I feel so alone. Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, take my full life, God, take my adventurous life, take my exciting career, take my future prospects, I surrender it to you. This is not, worship is not saying, God, I've got my agenda here. Will you bless it? Worship is saying, I'm trading in my agenda for yours. Your agenda is my agenda. From this day forward, God, you lead my life. Live or die, I'm yours. That's worship. You see, worship isn't singing songs. I love to sing songs. So do you. But that's not worship. That's an expression of worship. Worship is a heart response to to seeing God for who He is and what He's done for us such that you can't help surrendering more and more of yourself to God and sometimes that issues forth in song. That's one expression of worship. Worship is about surrendering your remaining days, however many there may, may, may be to God. You know, Jesus once said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life For my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? One man said it's better to lose your life than to waste it. To waste it chasing after everything this world has to offer? If you and I aim our lives at the right target, center our lives in the right message, and surrender our lives to the right purpose, even if we end up losing our lives in the process, we will not have wasted it one more thought from this passage this is where it gets starts to get very practical how can i maximize my one and only life for the things that matter number four leverage your life for the right cause and what is that according to paul here it's discerning and doing and delighting in the will of god Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world press you into its mold. Do not let let the surrounding culture dictate your value system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what it is, the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Make no mistake, God has a will. God has desires. God has intentions. For the universe, yes, but for you and you and you and you and me. What is God's will for my life? You ever ask yourself that question? It's what Bible college students stay up late at night debating. Should I date Susie or should I date Greta? You know? Should I take this class or drop this class? And then later, should I take this job in Nashville or this job in Columbus? What is God's will? It's a big question. It's an important question. Those of us who love the Lord want to know what he wants. And here, Paul makes reference to us personally experiencing God's will and finding it to be good and acceptable and perfect for us. The remainder of this chapter, we're going to dive into it next week, he lays out two dimensions of God's will that flow out of a life aimed at the glory of God. And it's these. In verses 3 through 13, he says, God's will is for you to humbly serve his people. Humbly serve his people in the church, your family. And then in verses 14 through 21, he says, God's will is for you to show his mercy, to happily, gladly show his mercy to the world. Serve his people in the church, show his mercy to the people of the world. Notice that both of these pull us outward, out from ourselves and sends us towards people. You want your life to matter, to count? You you want to not waste your one and only life? Invest it in the four things that last forever God, His Word, His kingdom, and people. Those are the only things that are eternal, that will outlive you. Jesus amplified this theme when He gave His followers two commands love your brothers and love your neighbors. Love those within the family of God, your brothers and sisters who are redeemed in the family of God and love those who are not yet in the family of God, your neighbors, even those who don't like you very much. your enemies. Here at New Life, we talk about each of us having a ministry to the body and a mission to the world because we believe that will flow from a life of worship and that is the will of God and that's how not to waste our lives. We'll explore this more in depth next weekend, and I'm going to talk with you next weekend about what I like to call your labor of love, that custom-designed work of worship that the Lord has designed for you to do, to serve His body, to bless your neighbors. I love when I hear about new lifers who've discovered and discerned and found the will of God for this in their lives. Some of you have yet to discover that. I'm praying that God will show you. Maybe maybe you're going to start a blog, an online blog, to share stories of God's grace with those who will read it. Maybe you're going to offer yourself to work with adults with disabilities in and through this church. That ministry is growing in this church. God's bringing things to us and you can begin serving in that ministry. Johnny and friends, me and my friends. Maybe you're going to feel prompted to join Michael Scheibeck and Barbara and Rick and Barb Prince and their team as they go down right up the road here and minister to some elderly folks facing unique challenges in the rest home up here. Maybe you're going to start a Bible study at work. You've wanted to do that, you felt prompted, and the Lord's going to give you the strength and the courage to call some folks in your office to study the Word with you. Maybe you're going to Look at your home a little differently. You're going to create a guest bedroom in your house so that you can better show hospitality. Maybe to Chinese students who are coming this fall to study at The Ohio State University, coming from China. Maybe you're going to step up to teach the gospel here in our ministries to first graders on Sunday mornings so that they can know Jesus. Or Wednesday nights through our Awana clubs. Maybe, like one guy, you're going to start a ministry. His was biking, and he's going to gather together people who enjoy that pastime and and begin to build relationships and look for open doors of conversation to talk about things that really matter with some fellow bikers. Maybe you're going to offer yourself to someone of a younger generation just to be a conversation partner about life and love and relationships and ministry. Or maybe back in the 90s, you played in a garage band and you were hot stuff on the drums and you're thinking, I want to use that for God. God. Because Jesus has redeemed me and you're going to say I'm offering myself to play on the worship team at New Life. God is infinitely creative. Do you know that? He is infinitely creative. He has things in mind for his people that are customized and innovative and beautiful and impactful and joyful. And as each one of us makes progress towards discerning his will for us, for you as an individual, you'll be well on your way to maximizing your one and only life for His glory. Right now, I want to share with you one exciting way I believe God is leading us as a church, together, collectively, to worship Him and to glorify His name, to spread His good news, to invest in people. You know, I've become convinced that the best way that we can collectively love our neighbors is to plop a congregation of Jesus-loving people right in the middle of them right in their community. So many good things flow to a neighborhood, to a community from that, from having Christ-loving people who gather for worship and who scatter to serve Christ. So many good things flow from that. After many months of praying, our elders recently came to believe the Lord Jesus is leading us to open another New Life campus for a total of three, Gehanna and Whitehall, and at the point of his timing, out east, New Life East. Our elders also believe that the Lord has been working to prepare and equip and call Pastor Brian to spearhead that effort as the campus pastor of New Life East. And so I've asked Brian to come and share a little bit about his own journey as he sought to follow the will of God in his life. So come on up, Brian.
1: Well, finding God's will for your life it's a challenge, isn't it? Depending on which end of your life you're on, the whole idea might seem daunting or even depressing. If you're on the teens, 20s, 30s end of life, it might appear to be nearly impossible an impossible task of seeking God. Seeking his plan, making wise decisions, maybe even trying to stay out of the way of what God wants for you. Make sure you get it. And if you're on the other side of those numbers, even if you're well beyond your 50s, 60s, or 70s, may seem as though you've possibly blown it and missed out, or maybe you're looking back and just hoping that you've left a legacy and you've made a mark on people's lives for the gospel. Or you might even find yourself on that end of things, be saying, well, I've been there, I've done that. I've served God, now I'm done and I'll coast my way home. Well, standing here today, I feel like I've been on officially now both sides of that God's will equation. In 1979, I left my boyhood home in Pensacola, Florida, and I headed off to college at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Knowing that I sensed that God had led me there through a series of events and prayer and input from others, and especially the impact my parents made as they always supported my brother and I in our effort to obey Jesus. I had only really a vague sense of what would happen after college. Anybody ever been there? Like what in the world am I starting this for? I don't even know what I'm gonna do. Only that I believed that somehow kingdom ministry would, would be involved. And in 1981, I began meeting with a group of men in the discipleship group, which included Pastor Steve, eventually being challenged by our group leader, the New Life's first lead pastor, Dave Early, to to, come to Columbus, Ohio, start a church with a church planting team. And I remember at that moment feeling very unsure of myself through that whole decision process. Have you ever been there? I had never been an overly self-confident person, not really sure of myself, just a a skinny kid who, okay, skinny then, I'm not saying anything now, okay, skinny then, skinny kid who questioned himself, didn't feel overly capable of accomplishing much. So as I prayed about that opportunity, I realized that it would probably be one of the hardest things I had ever done, and I was right. But still, I sensed that I was supposed to say yes. And for the, near, the next three, four years, we began to, prayer to cl- uh, prepare to come to Columbus and ask God to use us. And it has indeed been a hard, challenging, frustrating, soul-searching, beat my head against a wall at times, stretching, spiritually igniting, grace-covered, love-filled, life-altering, 31, years of this journey so far. God never promised us an easy road and in fact he never even promised us a safe one. What he does promise is that he will go along with us on that journey when it is his journey that we are on. That's what he's done. And 31 years later, he has never failed to keep his promises to me and my family and to New Life Church because he is good. He is very good. And so what was the challenge of that 30-something-year-ago college student in his 20s? To try and glorify God as best I could by offering my life to Jesus as an act of worship for the cause of some cause greater than myself. I was definitely not confident. I was not completely sure of what was ahead. What I did know is that I could be obedient and say yes, I could do that. And so now another similar opportunity to obey has come my way. On the other end of my life, if you will. And honestly, I am very excited about my current role and responsibilities at New Life Kahana, I love what I do every day. And somewhere along the way, while my ministry is amazingly challenging, I actually became confident that I do it well. But God is saying, let's do this again. No coasting, don't put your landing gear down quite yet. There is a new phase of kingdom work to be done. And so Terry and I have prayed along with New Life's elders, as Pastor Steve has said, and we've agreed that New Life's next site is to be east of the city, most likely along that Broad Street corridor, and with me taking the role of campus pastor. This is a huge challenge that God is placing in front of us. But here's what I believe he wants us to do. He wants us to go and take the gospel through new life to a place where people need Jesus, just like Gehanna, just like Whitehall. Think of this, within a five mile radius of the Broad Street-Wagner intersection, there are over 100,000 people, huge percentages of whom don't know Jesus. 10 miles out, just imagine, Thousands of people who need Jesus. Thousands of families who are raising their children without Jesus. Hundreds of neighborhoods where Christ's church has had little to no impact yet. And I don't believe that God is saying this just to me. I think he might be saying it to you. This is why we're here. This is why you may be here. It's not just for crazy pastors every believer, each of us must answer the call to build Christ's kingdom through whatever gifts we may have, even through our own self-questioning and our doubt. This is our chance once again, as we did 31 years ago in Gehenna and a year ago in Whitehall, to put the local back in the local church. I believe we can do it together. I believe we have to do it together. So, If you live in Blacklick or Pataskala or Reynoldsburg or anywhere else for that matter, please begin praying about being a part of what could be an exciting new effort. Maybe God is saying it's time to take on a challenge beyond yourself. Well, join the team. In September, we're going to be having several vision gatherings, so be sure to watch for those. And I think that God has maybe just have something planned for many of us together. He's chosen us for this time, and this moment, and this kingdom adventure. Thanks.
0: Stand with me, would you? We wanted to let you know that so you could begin praying about that even now. Um, there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a few things we do know. Uh, we do know that we feel the Lord leading us to, to utilize the same approach that we use with our Whitehall campus, which was to not put a start date on it, but to establish standards that need to be in place, and that way we'll know when Jesus' time frame is. We also... Uh, Feel compelled beginning this fall to call all of us to begin to think what our financial investment can be in that effort so that we can raise the funds for the first year up front for our East Campus. And we're including our Whitehall folks in that as well. So it's a collaborative effort between Hannah and Whitehall. And so be praying about this, would you? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Unto God, and I wonder: Have you ever just said to the Lord, "Lord, I'll be what You want me to be. I'll do what You want me to do. I'll go where You want me to go." Have you ever said that and meant it? I mean, that's when the adventure begins. When you offer yourself to God, would you bow your heads with me? And maybe you're feeling compelled to do that right now, and I just invite you to do that. Just. Whisper that prayer to the Lord right now. Lord, you bought me. You made me. You purchased me. I'm doubly yours. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to go where you want me to go. And Lord, that's where I'm at this morning as well. I offer myself to you again for the hundredth time. Lord, I want the remainder of my days on this earth, which have all been graced so far since June of 1979, I want them to count for what really matters. Use me, use us, for the greatest good possible, through Jesus Christ, we pray.
1: Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.